Amen. You may be seated. Thanks. Thank you, Eric. Well, welcome. Man, some of my favorite people are here today. Thank you, man. If you cheered, you might be one of them. <laughs> hey, you know, I am so excited about today. I have had this date circled on the calendar, this message. It's going to be a little bit different than usual, but I'm excited. Whether you are or not, just know that I am. And my hope today is that uh, Jesus will be made famous, not only in this place, but in this area, in this, in this city. There's no one like Jesus. And for those of you who've been with us, you have been on this journey as we've been going through this series for two years, going through Luke chapter by chapter, verse by verse, working through, and we come to know Jesus in a new way. His disciples have been with him for three years following him, and today we get to a big, a big moment. Last week, uh, Charlie spoke about how Jesus was arrested and tried and tortured and then crucified. If you were in growth groups, you took that deeper and, and got to see, you know, what was it? Why was he crucified? And what about the, the suffering and the humiliation? And today, we're going to discuss 10 seconds in the life of Jesus. We're just gonna discuss 10 seconds, maybe less. Now, I went to seminary, so you know I can stretch that into 30 minutes. <laughs> but we're preaching about 10 seconds from the book of Luke. Now, I'm gonna be skipping around a lot today, so you guys can stay up here. I've asked for the, the words to be on the screen, but let me, let, me, um, let me just pray for us this morning. Jesus, we pray that you would speak we pray you would be made known in this place. I pray you would take whatever I say and translate it to the hearts and minds of those who need it, Lord. I pray you get all the glory. We pray that you be glorified. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. amen. Mark 15, 25 says this. It was nine in the morning. That actually is the third hour. The Hebrew would say it's the third hour when Jesus was crucified. He was crucified at the third hour. Luke 23, 44 says, it was now about noon, which was the sixth hour. And darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. We are in the moment where Jesus is on the cross. He was crucified at the third hour, at the sixth hour. This, these are the Hebrew ways of keeping the time. At the, at the noon, the sixth hour, he was, there was a darkness that came over the land until three. About three in the afternoon, Matthew 27 says this. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The ninth hour. And then, verse 50. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. John 19.30 tells us what it was that he cried out again. Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Somewhere in here is 10 seconds that we're going to look at today. Crucified at nine in the morning. At noon, this darkness came over. At three, he yells, it is finished, and gives up his spirit. First, before I get into this, I want to I just pull aside and tell you about the Luke Project, something I hope that today lends itself to as well. As we've gone through this Luke Project of working through the Bible to see what's in God's word, Charlie and myself and the elders have had a deep hope that we are falling in love with God's word. 
We hope that, like, like, we hope for you, like us, that as we've gone through this, there's been weeks where, like, we know that story, but I didn't know that. We're seeing new, fresh revelation. We're digging, seeing new truths. That we're seeing that the Bible is not just a book where we have a daily devotional and find a moral for the day. It's the revelation of God's nature. It is God telling us about his heart. And so as we've gone through this, our prayer as a church, as an orchard, may we be people of the book. May we be people who find God's nature and revelation and wisdom within this. Today I'm hoping that we see, once again, the beauty of the fabric of God's word and how it's woven together. Now often when we read uh, something in the Bible, we will read over it and we don't stop to ask questions. Why is that in there? I believe the Bible is divinely inspired by God. And so when I read something there, I kind of want to stop and say, God, why was that important to you to make sure it was there? And this week, what we've already read, there's things in there that we go over every single time. But we want to stop and say, why is that important to you that you put that in there? Three of the four Gospels mention something curious in in what we just read. Rarely in the Bible are we given a specific time of day. And they give us all times throughout that day, don't they? The third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, 9 a.m., noon, 3 p.m. They're giving us these, these times, but why would it need to be in there? Like, why all of a sudden, after all of this, are we, is, is, is someone keeping track of time? And the same disciples who are telling us the time haven't told us the time in the other, of the other things. They've never said, well, he healed the young boy at 2.55 p.m. They never do that. But here, something about it, God wants us to know the time. Why? Why is that? Do you ever stop and just say, why, God, why is that in there? Well, Matthew, he is a Jewish, he's writing, Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience. And so his mention of the time is an indicator of something. But an indicator of what? Like, we're here today, we're not first century Hebrews. Did you know this? Yeah. We're not. We don't know what it means that it's the ninth hour. We would probably assume that's what? Time, nine o'clock. The ninth hour sounds like nine o'clock. It's not nine o'clock in their, in their time. At ninth hour, Jesus yells, it is finished, and then dies. Less than 10 short seconds. But I want to take these 10 seconds, and I want to go inside of them to see what is happening. Is that okay with you? But to do that, we have to go back in time 2,000 years. So we're going to leave this 10 seconds of the ninth hour, it is finished, and we're going to go back to the first book of the Bible, to Genesis. In Genesis, God is looking to start a new movement. And when God looks to start a new movement, you know what he does? He finds a people. Just like today, God's looking for a people to start a movement in this area. God has always done this. He finds the people for the movement. So he's looking for these people. And he finds a man named Abram. We will go ahead and call him Abraham. That's how we all know him. God changes his name. Genesis 12 Two through three, God comes to Abraham. He's a 75-year-old man, and he has an old wife. And he says, God says, I will make you into a great nation. 75. I'll make you into a great nation, and I'll bless you, and I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. 
Next verse. I will bless those who bless, the, bless you and curse those who curse you and all people on earth will be blessed through you. He comes to Abraham and says these things. I'm going to make you a great nation. Can you imagine this moment? Can you imagine when the God of the universe shows up and tells you, I'm gonna make you a great nation, a great name, a great blessing, and all people on the earth will be blessed through you. Now just as an aside, when it says all people of the earth will be blessed through you, do you know what, it's, do you know what this is a foreshadowing of? A Messiah. That Abraham, through you, through your line, the entire world, all people on the earth, none left out, we blessed. That's the Messiah. Abraham, the Messiah is going to come through your line. There's, it's, it's pretty amazing because he says, the Messiah, the great nation, and many blessings and many children. Now, for, for Abraham and his wife Sarah, this would have been mind-blowing because, because, see, back then, life was tribal. You know, we view them living in these, uh, these mansions or whatever. They're living in tents in the depth. This is your tribal life. Back then, the size of your family was the marker of your wealth and your strength. The more sons you had, the stronger your tribe. The more daughters you had, the larger your tribe. Sons and daughters are the biggest indicator of this time during the tribal, area, tribal era of blessing and strength. And God promises them they're going to have a great nation and great name. And guess how many sons and daughters they have? Zero. He's 75 and has zero kids. I'm going to make you a great nation. Yeah. I think you're a little late on that one. My wife is young at heart, but... They're going to be a mighty tribe with a mighty nation, a mighty name. What happens next? God tells him this in Genesis 12. And guess what happens? It'll blow your mind. Nothing happens. They have no kids. There's no pregnancies. They just keep getting older. Can you imagine God telling you that you'll be rich someday, but you just keep getting poorer? for longer. Many of you are like, yeah, I know that story. Listen, he promises them a great name and great nation and nothing happens. So later, God appears to Abraham to reiterate his blessing. And I love this. He shows up to Abraham. And Abraham, like you and I, is like, I, yeah, I know. You told me you'd have a blessing for me and great name and great nation, but God. <laughs> so he questions God. Abraham, asks, he asks God after God says, I have great things for you. He says, God, what can you even give me? I have no children, so anything you bless me with will simply go to my servant, my butler, because I have no kids. See, it was a custom back in that day that without children, whatever the leader possessed went to the head of his household, his head servant, who didn't even bear his name. Jeeves gets everything. Actually, we know his name. I'm just kidding. It's Eleazar. Eleazar gets everything. Eleazar's like, there's a blessing in this house? Hey, yes, ring the bell. I will show up. I'll be the butler, but someday, someday. He says, God, I have no children. He says it again. He states it twice in a row. We have no kids, and, and Eleazar's going to get everything. It's hard to be a great nation when your butler gets all of your belongings. And God replies, your servant will not get your inheritance. 
Go outside and look at the stars and count them if you can. Go ahead, count them because your offspring will be as numerous as the stars. And we all know Father Abraham had many sons. He didn't know that yet. He's outside looking at the stars and, and, and the Bible, it doesn't record him saying anything. Either he's just in awe or he's trying to count. I don't know what he's doing, but he's out there for a while. And then it says this about him. And this tells us a lot about the heart of Abraham and a lot about why God chose him. It says that Abraham believed God and believed his promise. Abraham, old man, old wife, no children, looks at the stars and in his faith goes, I can see it. I believe it, God. I believe it. His belief was greater than his circumstances. Anybody else in this boat? Anybody else's circumstances just not measuring up to what you feel maybe God growing inside of you? God, it's not making sense out here, but you are calling me to something in here. You're calling me to an impact or to something, Father. You've been working and moving in me, but it doesn't, I don't see it out there. Well, you get to choose what you partner with. Abraham chose to partner with the God of the universe who says you'll have children like the stars. Let's have that kind of faith. The partners with what God would have for us. But God wasn't done yet. God said, Abraham, not only that, I'm gonna give you land. That's big. I'm gonna give you land. God tells Abraham, you'll have children, many children. You'll have blessing and you'll have land. But here Abraham decides to ask God something. I, I get the stars and maybe it's just too much. Maybe he's already, it's been too many years. He says, God, how can I know that this is gonna happen? He asks for assurance. God, how can I know? You, you, know, you ever been here? Like, God, can you just do something? Can you just show me? I, I believe you, but what can you assure me with? God, where's the proof? How can I be certain? So God decides to meet Abraham where he is and decides to assure him now, when you are asking for assurance in your life here on earth, and let's say you're asking for assurance with another person. Let's say you're going to sell something or buy something or you're going to swap something or whatever it is, and you want some assurance. What do you want? What do you need? A contract, right? Like, how can I know you're going to pay this back? How can I know that over the course of 30 years you're going to pay much more than this is worth? How can I know that? Well, we have a contract that proves that. In those days, it was a covenant. A covenant was a promissory vow, a contract between two parties. And a covenant isn't just legal. Listen to me. It's relational. A covenant always leads to a deeper relationship of the parties involved. Always. Covenants lead to further relationship. And if this were modern times, if we were reading this story in modern times, um, we would say, God, how can I be certain that this is gonna happen? And he would say, bring me a lawyer, a paper, a pen, and a notary. And we would know, wouldn't we? Wouldn't we know what's gonna happen? Oh, he's gonna draw up a contract. He's, we know, a notary, a lawyer, a pen, and a paper. We, we, we get it. We culturally understand what God's about to do. There's only one thing. This is not modern day. They had no lawyers. This is before the time of lawyers roamed the earth. <laughs> so it's not modern day. So instead of God saying, bring me these things, God says this. 
Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, and a dove and a young pigeon. Now we, we read this and we go, what is God doing? Like he's sealing his promise with a petting zoo? I don't know. God is so weird sometimes. We don't understand it. Just like they would not understand a notary and a pen and a paper. But, but Abraham understood this. We know he understood this. We know by his actions that this is not anything new to him at all. Because without any instruction for God, it says that he got the animals and he cuts the three mammals, the heifer, the goat, and the ram, he cuts them in half and puts them opposite of each other. Now hold on, hold on. Did God tell him to do that? Did he? No. God just said, go get them. Abraham gets them and then does this thing with them. He knows what this is. This is common to their culture. In fact, there are still some Bedouin cultures where they still do this right, this thing. We, we, have, we have proof that this was something that has been done. So when he got that, when God said, bring me these animals, he knew exactly. If you heard him say, bring me a notary, a lawyer, and some pen and paper, you would get all those things, get them at the table, and wait for him. You prepare the paperwork. Abraham's preparing the paperwork. He cuts them in half, puts them opposite of each other, and the two birds he puts on the very end. This was a very common practice. This was how covenants were made back then. In fact, did you know this is where we get the term to cut a deal? Anytime someone says, let's cut a deal, they're referring to an ancient practice that has to do with a covenant. This is a part of so many different places. Abraham asks for assurance. God says, get five animals. Abraham gets them, cuts them, arranges them. It's nothing new for Abraham. And what's wild, like I said, there's places where they still do this. And throughout time, throughout time, there's always been a form and a substance to covenants. Did you know that? There's a way that they go. Throughout the ages and the cultures, the most binding contracts are sealed in what? Blood. Now, we can get a little ooey-gooey about it because we're modern and, whoa, they're cutting animals in half, but this, was, this has been going on all across the world. Ancient Syrian custom called the Mahadat Adam that survived until modern times where two Syrian men would, or women would cut their veins, remove the blood, put it on some parchment or put it on a leaf or a paper, fold it up and wear it around each other's necks for the rest of their life, reminding them of the blood covenant they have signed. In many cultures, these type of blood covenants and pacts are considered more binding than marriage because you can always divorce somebody, but a blood covenant, a blood pact. There was a severity and an intensity to such a covenant. And I read account after account from cultures from Korea and China and Middle East, India, Indians, Mongolia, Scandinavia, European, many others where they use this. And probably you've seen those old Western movies where two guys are like, Agreeing over a, some cattle or some land. What do they do? Cut their hand and shake hands, right? They cut their hand and they shake hands. They're, they're now called what? Blood what? Blood brothers. We get this. We do the same thing now. We just don't cut our hands. When you, when you settle a contract, when you sign a deal, you shake the hand at the end, don't you? We've left all the blood out and we've kept the handshake, thankfully. Let's, let's stick with that. For us, the idea of blood and animals in this covenant is barbarian and foreign. Just as foreign as the idea of bringing a lawyer, a pen, and a paper, and a notary in there would be to them. They're like, how would that stop anything? How would that promise anything? 
This is, this is so far removed from us. But we have to remember back then there is no judge, there is no court, there's no lawyer, no contract. There's none of these people to make sure that covenants are held. So they had to go be intense and binding in how they did this. A covenant by its very definition is a solemn agreement or a promise by which two parties commit themselves to responsibilities, responsibilities demanded by their relationship. Remember, covenant leads to further relationship. They both accept the serious consequences of breaking faith. Do you know what most often in most cultures the consequences are of breaking a blood oath or a blood pact or a blood covenant? It's death. Because it's foreshadowing. You're saying, I will do this now, and if I break it, we'll do this again. There's different types of covenants. There's the parity covenant between equals. That's where me and an equal come together, and I say, what are you going to bring? Here's what I'm going to bring. And we, had to, we do a covenant together as equals. This, this has happened um, throughout time when you have two tribes, one tribe that was good at, at hunting, one tribe that was good at, at farming, and they would have a covenant, a blood covenant, so that both tribes were rounded out the fruits of both of their labors. David and Jonathan made a parody covenant of equals. There's the marriage covenant. We covenant to be together and let nothing tear us apart. And these ceremonies vary worldwide. The final type of covenant that I'm gonna look at today is the one that God and Abraham signed and filled. And this is a Caesarian vassal covenant. You heard of that? You studied this? Caesarian vassal covenant. It's between someone who is stronger and someone who is weaker, a king and their subjects, a greater king and a lesser king, a, a, a conqueror and the conquered people. Now remember, it always leads to greater relationships, so in a lot of these Caesarian vassal contracts, they refer to the, the, the bigger party as the father or the mother. Like a queen is the queen mother and they are her children. That's a Caesarian vassal contract. Back to Abraham and God making this covenant. Here in this account, we have God setting up a Caesarian covenant with Abraham. God is obviously the superior, Abraham the inferior. God brings with him on his side of the deal, I'm bringing children as numerous as the stars, I'm bringing land for generations, and I'm, Abraham, I'm bringing that you will bless every people, all people on the earth, the Messiah. What does Abraham bring to the table? Sarah. Some flocks. And a butler, apparently, Eleazar. He's the inferior party. So God tells him, let's make a covenant, get the animals. Abraham gets it, cuts them up, prepares the paperwork, so to speak. And uh, what's described here is the three animals cut in half, the two birds are not split but cut open, and they would be ar arranged with an, in an incline so the blood would run down into the middle. Now those of you who hunt or ranch, um, you can imagine when you cut an animal in half and don't quarter them, how much blood there would be on this. It would, it would slide down the incline and join in the middle to make a path, and this is what it would kind of look like. So you see the animals on the top, down to the birds on the bottom, and in the middle, there's this blood that runs to the middle. Isn't this, it, aren't you glad you showed up today? I mean, we don't, get enough, we don't get enough just good bloody Old Testament. I'm making sure to round out your biblical knowledge. Stick with me, stick with me. I promise you, I'm taking this somewhere and Stick with me. As you can imagine, there was a certain way that ancient covenants would proceed from this point. First, the superior party would walk down the middle stamping his feet, take off his sandals, her, him, stamping his feet, getting the blood on their feet and on their robe. 
We have a slide that, that will show you, yes, there's bloody feet and there's an animal. So there you go. In case you were wondering, that's what it would look like. Um, what he's saying here, or what she's saying here, whoever's walking down this first part of the Caesarean Covenant says, all I have promised you, I will make good on. And if not, what has happened to these animals, may it happen to me. That's what you say, that's what you're saying when you walk through the blood path. What has happened to them, may it happen to me if I do not fulfill my part of the covenant. You don't default on this. At this point, Abraham is setting all this up knowing that the covenant is approaching and he will have to walk the blood path as the second party. Because the second party would have to walk through afterwards. The second party would walk through and stamp their feet, getting the blood on themselves and saying, all that I have covenanted, all I have promised, may I come through with it, may I make good on it, and if not, may what's happened to these animals happen to me. It is, may I fulfill my side or may I be dead. And Abraham is setting this covenant up but there's a huge issue. We know what God is promising. Abraham, you'll have great nation, great lands. You'll have a name and legacy, and through you, I'll bring the Messiah. But what is Abraham covenanting to do? <laughs> Abraham, all he has to do is walk in perfect relationship with the superior. All the vassal has to do here is walk in perfect relationship with the suzerian superior in this that's all you have to do abraham i'm going to do all these things but you have to walk perfectly not deviating not betraying not breaking confidence and because this is a covenant with the divine god not sinning abraham you get all of this and all i get is you live in perfect relationship with me abraham live perfectly and I will perfectly deliver to you all that I have promised. Hmm. Now Abraham also knows this is a generational covenant by the way God has set it up. So not only must he walk this perfectly, but Sarah must. His children must walk this perfectly. His children's children, his fifth and fifteenth generation must walk this perfectly. He's realizing that not, not, not only must he walk it, but what is the consequence if it happens? May what is done to these animals be done to me. <sighs> Heavy. Put yourself in this moment. You're Abraham. You have just been promised the world and laid out a covenant that will bind you and the Almighty together in a relationship forever unless you or your offspring misstep per the terms of a suzerian vassal contract if you misstep the covenant is over and death will be upon you all if you walk perfectly you are blessed if you misstep death awaits you what would you do what would you do would you walk through the blood what, what an amazing, amazing, undeniable benefit comes with this covenant. But what amazing, unattainable requirements go along with it. How do you measure up to the requirements? 
how would you feel about this covenant? Culturally, contextually, we don't know what a Caesarean vassal contract is. But, but I've looked at he, the, the ancient Hebrew sages and the Christian. They, this, they know what they're building here. This is a Caesarean contract. This is what's on the line. What do you think Abraham's feeling as he looks at this very familiar covenant that, that he knows culturally and contextually what it means? What is he feeling? What do you think he's feeling? Well, we know what he's feeling because the text tells us. It says that after splitting the animals and creating a blood path, a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Now, this is a Hebrew figure of speech. In English, it would read, he was scared to death. That's what it means. A thick and dreadful darkness came over him. What was he dreading? Walking the blood path. Why? It has all the blessings. But the responsibility. He knows he can't uphold his side of the covenant. He knows he's saying, if I walk that, that I'm saying, if I break this, if anyone in my line breaks this, may it was done to these animals, be done to me. How can I walk that? Night falls. It's time to walk the path. Abraham is waiting for God to walk the blood path between the halves. He's the superior party in a Caesarean vassal covenant, the superior to walk through first. And the text says this. It's so curious. It says a smoking fire pot passes between the pieces. Can you imagine being Abraham? Watching at this night as you watch this smoking fire pot pass between the halves and the blood? Think of the times in the Bible when we see smoke, what does it usually represent? Just when God's presence descends on Mount Sinai, it's covered in smoke. In Isaiah 6, smoke fills the temple with God's presence. The tabernacle and temple, smoke descends on as God's presence is there. A pillar of cloud by day, smoke is often the image of the glory of God and God's presence. And when it comes time for the superior to walk through, a smoking fire pot passes through, saying, what is done to these animals be done to me if I break this. God is going to uphold his part of the covenant. You can imagine being Abraham in the dark, and this is still night, and watching Almighty God pass through in the form of a smoking fire pot, vowing to you that he will make good on, on making you a great nation. Abraham, I will uphold my covenant. You need only be perfect. And now, whose turn is it? <coughs> whose turn is it? The inferior, the lesser, Abraham. I just wonder how long did he stand there after he watched the smoking fire pot go through? Did that dreadful darkness still hover over him? How can I keep this? And if I keep it, surely somebody someday is going to fail. But my God has asked this of me. We know Abraham. We know some things about Abraham. We see further in his story that he takes, when God calls, he will go. And he sees that God has set up this covenant, and so he decides that he is going to go. And I can imagine Abraham stepping up in his rightful time as the vassal. He steps up, maybe as his breath quickens and his adrenaline goes and he puts his foot in the air, something stops him. It's very reminiscent of another covenant he's gonna do with God. Something stops him right before he puts his foot in the blood. Now, 
I wish, uh, if you're reading in the NIV, there's the word and. But if you're reading in the ancient, there's something else involved here. Because something stops Abraham and he doesn't walk through. The Bible states that when it was Abraham's turn to walk the blood path and seal the covenant, a blazing torch, a flaming torch passed through instead. Abraham never walked this covenant. He watched, stunned, as a torch passed through for him. Now think of fire. In the Bible, think of fire. What do you think of? Well, we have an exodus. It's the pillar of fire. For Moses, it's the flame in the bush. In Deuteronomy, he's called a consuming fire. For Elijah, fire comes from heaven and consumes his offering. In the New Testament, there's tongues of fire. Fire in the Bible is never a representative of humankind. It is always, almost always, a representative of something divine, of God. And so we have here this smoking fire pot that passes through during the Caesarean contract, and we have a blazing torch that passes through during the, the vassal section. Abraham has not walked through it all. Now, now, hold on, stick with me. I know this is a lot, but, but the implications of what just happened are shocking. Are you already shocked? Are you prepared to be shocked? God walks both sides of the Caesarean contract. He takes responsibility for both parties. Both sides of the accountability now rest upon him. Abraham, I know you cannot walk this. You cannot uphold your end of the covenant, but Abraham, I will walk it for you and may the consequences be on me. Abraham, you get the blessing, you get the name, you get the nation, the children, the land, you get the Messiah, and Abraham, your descendants, they won't walk it either. Will they? Will they walk it perfectly? Will you read it? They don't, and they can't, and they won't, and God knows that. God, the smoking fire pot, passed through saying, Abraham, all I have promised I will be good on, and if not, may what is done to these be done to me. And the flaming torch appeared and passed through, and Abraham, Sarah, and your descendants, both physically and spiritually, Abraham, I walk the blood path for you. So that if you mess up, what is done to these animals be done to me. And it was at that moment that God the Father sentenced Jesus to death. Now those of us in Luke, we believe, we believe that Pontius Pilate did it. But it's right here. Is there any doubt that Abraham is gonna sin? Is there any doubt that his descendants will sin? There's none. And there in heaven is Jesus watching his father sentence him to death. Years pass. Hundreds of years. 400 years. And God tells Moses, I don't want my people to forget the covenants. Build me a tabernacle and build me an altar. And there there are five animals I told Abraham to gather. Pick any of those but none other. And every day I want you to offer sacrifices. Twice a day. Every day. Sabbath, every day. Holiday, every day. Twice a day. Of those five animals, pick them. Offer sacrifices. Twice a day. Once in the morning, once later in the day. Is it important that Jesus died at the ninth hour? Do you think? For thousands of years, these sacrifices were made. 
in the tabernacle that Moses used throughout the desert wandering, and then in the first temple that Solomon built, and then in Jesus' time, there was Herod's temple, the, the, the very temple that Jesus taught in. One at nine in the morning, the third hour, and the other at 3 p.m., the ninth hour. And they would take these animals, they would sacrifice it, throw the blood on the altar in hope and remembrance. God of Abraham, remember your promise. Remember us and forgive us. Twice a day. Every day. Now in the temple of Jesus' time, the sacrifice had become quite a ceremony. There were priests for every section of it. If you've ever, if you were here years ago when we did the, uh, the teaching on the tabernacle and the temple, every section has some theological goodness stored up in there. And by Jesus' day, what was a, a, um, a sacrifice had, had become a huge production. Not in a bad way, but they had priests for everything along the way. They had one priest, and his job was to watch the sun or the sundial. They had a sun or a sundial because he had to know the exact hour. They also had a sand timer for in such a case that it got dark, the sun was obscured, or for whatever reason through storm or more likely dust storm, they couldn't see the sun. He would stand there with his timer. Another priest would stand ready. This priest, his sole job was to blow the shofar. You know what a shofar is? It is the ancient Hebrew trumpet. And he would stand there in his place with his horn. He had one job, and his one job was at the third and ninth hour, the preach watching the sundial, or the sand timer, when it came to the right moment, he would turn to the priest, and he would tell him to blow the trumpet, the shofar. Now, interestingly, there's a place called the Pinnacle of the Temple on the southwest side, and archaeologists found a piece of, of, of stone there that says the place of trumpeting. So there was a certain place that this priest would stand. He had a place. Every day, twice a day, he would stand there. And at the right time, the priest watching the sun or the sundial would look over at him and give him the nod, and he would blow the, he would blow the shofar. Now when the shofar was done being blown, as it echoed through the city, the people would stand still. The city would quiet for that moment after the shofar was blasted. And they would stand in that moment knowing that directly after the shofar blast, another priest with the sacrificial blade would step up and cut the throat of the animal. And he would take the blood and throw it on the altar. And the entire town would think, Jesus, not Jesus, sorry. They would think, they would say, God, please. God, please remember your promise. Remember your covenant. We've sinned. Forgive us. Twice a day. Every day. Third hour, ninth hour. In succession. The right hour, the shofar blast, the sacrifice, all in remembrance of the covenant God had made with the people, all in accordance with the need for blood for the atonement of sins, all in line with the covenant God passed through them. God, forgive us. Please, we have not walked it perfectly. This went on for 1,200 years. 
these sacrifices, twice a day, all these centuries. And I want us to stop and look at one day in particular, just one day, it was Passover. The city was packed. It's always packed on Passover. Up to a million pilgrims would come to Jerusalem to be a part of Passover. And the highest holiday, holidays of the, of the Jewish calendar, when they would, they would have the Pesach lamb and it was for God had passed us over and was gonna forgive us. This was a significant day. And a priest stood there at almost 3 p.m. the ninth hour watching a sundial. And the sun timer, he had, the sand timer, he had that, waiting for the exact moment. He looked at his fellow priest on the wall, shofar in hand, waiting for the signal. Down below in the court, in front of the blazing altar, another priest stood with the sacrificial blade ready, each doing what had been done for 1,200 years. The moment grew close. It was unusually dark this year. It was for this time of day, it was unusually dark. He had to use the sand timer. And when the ninth hour hit, one priest looked up to the other and nodded. Receiving the signal, can our priest come back out? Receiving the signal, he raised the shofar to his lips. He did not blow it yet. And the third priest, knowing what was close, prepared himself. And 360 yards away on a hill were three crosses. three men on a cross. They'd been there since nine in the morning as the shofar blew that morning announcing a sacrifice. The priest blew the shofar marking that ninth hour and the sound reached Golgotha. In the temple, the priest stepped up to the sacrifice, blade in hand. The city stopped. It grew silent, knowing that this was the moment. And there on that hill in the middle, a man pulled himself up and screamed, It is finished! And he died. Just as his father said he would. At exactly the ninth hour, And the blood of Jesus ran down into that ancient Middle Eastern soil. The same soil that thousands of years ago, before, the blood of the animals had made a path for Abraham. But Abraham couldn't walk that path. But here on this cross, the shed blood of Jesus ran down that beam of wood and made a new path. A path every person could walk. A path you can walk. A path I can walk. A new covenant, a new blood. I don't think he yelled it's finished because his torture was over. I don't even think he yelled it's finished because he had died. I think he yelled it is finished because the covenant, the redemption, all of it, it's finished. It's finished forever. A new covenant has come. Do you know what it means that Jesus died here? It means that he settled the covenant of blood and there need be no more sacrifice for sin. No more. No knives, no altars, no blood. 
but it also means there's no sacrifices that we would make. It means that your, your, your mantras and your enlightenment and your good works and your good karma and your good thoughts and your good actions and all the good you think is good, all those sacrifices that get you ahead spiritually, none of it's needed. None of it's worth anything. There is no more sacrifice for sin. None. It needed someone who could walk it perfectly in the place of all of us who could not walk it at all. Someone who'd had to take the cup of wrath upon themselves for all of us. And that is the good news. And you know gospel means good news, right? The good news of the gospel is this, that there's nothing you can do for your soul for salvation. Striving and sin management leads to an empty religious practice. And if you are worried about sin management in your life, you're not living the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's empty. There is nothing you can do to save your soul. Jesus came and fulfilled all of the ancient, everything, so that what he leaves in its place is new and living. You don't walk a path of blood with good intentions. And even better, you never have to because Jesus walked it for you. He walked what we could not, he passed through what we would not, and he was perfect where we were not. He was everything we could not be to fulfill the covenant, to fulfill the, choir, the requirements, what was needed. Jesus walked the path because we could not walk it. And because of that, he offers us this. He offers us what we could never have on our own. Forgiveness of our past, peace and power in our present, and hope in our future. Eternal hope. Jesus invites you to be a part of his movement of love and grace. He offers salvation and redemption to you. He would say this to you. He would say, believe in me. Believe in me. Believe in the sacrifice that I made. Believe in the life that I gave up. Believe in the life that I picked back up and became glorified. Believe in me and you shall be saved. The whole Bible points to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything. And he would say, believe in me. I am calling you to believe in me. As we close today, I want you, as, we, as you come forward, and listen, we have an open table. You do not have to go to any classes or be a member of our church to partic participate in God's communion. This is a symbol of Jesus' blood and his body, his covenant, his new blood path that he made. He walked what we could not, and he made a path where that we can walk. So as you come take communion, I want you to be thankful I want you to say thank you. Jesus, thank you that you walked this, that you gave yourself. God, thank you for your grand story, that the Bible is woven together in such a way, in such a beautiful way, that we see Jesus high and glorified and lifted up. If you want prayer for anything, we are going to have people up here to pray. And one last thing, if you're here today and you're like, I, I don't know Jesus personally, but I want to, I want to know this Jesus, the one who died for me. I want to know this Jesus, the one who called me. Please come talk to me. Come talk to me or my dad or a growth group leader or somebody who looks like they know what they're doing. Talk to them. We want, this is what we're about. We want people to know Jesus, his death and resurrection, the glory of Jesus. He changes everything. Orchard, guests, during this time, let the spirit of the living God whisper to you and when he calls and when he asks simply say yes amen